Welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you were aware of that, weren't you? Hey, it's a great day to be alive. We're another week further away from March 15th and another week closer to whatever the hell is on the other side. It's interesting because I think you got to say, got to buckle down and be like, this is like our life for a year. I just got to pretend like everything's cool. We're just going to sort of like, you know what? I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to get too worried about things for a year. I'm also not going to pretend like things are messed up because I think the more we try to pretend like everything's normal, the more messed up it feels. Baseball season is four days old and they've already got a coronavirus crisis on one of the teams, one of the Florida teams. It's always a Florida team. Blame it on Florida, those dirty, sweaty, humid Floridians. Hey, I've got a great show for you today. Great conversation with a guy named Kyle Kinane. He's an extremely funny and prolific comedian. He's got a new album out. We're going to tell you all about that. And we have some pretty fun, insightful conversations about the role of money in a creative life. So we'll get to my chat with Kyle in just a few minutes. Before we get there, I want to ask you, hey, if you're new to the show, first of all, hello, welcome, glad you're here. It won't be long until I ask you to do something for me, a favor for me. Okay, here it is. Will you please subscribe to the show? Hit that little purple square if you're on Apple, on Apple Podcasts. If you're on Spotify, hit that follow button so that next week, the next show automatically loads in your feed when you open up the app again. I want to start a relationship with you. Hey, and if you have a minute, why don't you... Take a second to rate and review the show. Scroll down past my face. Click a few stars. Write something nice. Tell everybody else what you get out of the show and what they might find there for themselves. I appreciate you being here. I also appreciate the folks at Worldwide Employee Benefits Network, the Atlanta chapter. That's Holly, Greg, and Mike for hosting the Zoom comedy show we did for your local chapter last week. That was a lot of fun. You know, these Zoom comedy shows, maybe you've heard about these. I resisted them at first. Because I was like, nah, man, that's this weird, sickly sweet methadone in a parking lot. I do comedy for the real thing, you know? Well, there's not a lot of the real thing going on right now. And so I started doing these Zoom shows, and they're actually pretty darn fun. Now, it's not live stand-up. We don't have live stand-up for the most part for a long time here. So if you have a digital meeting or gathering that you'd like to bring some levity to, shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. I will work with your budget to put together the right kind of comedy experience for your team. It can be dirty. It can be clean. It can be political. It can be non-political, whatever you want. We're just here to have a good time. So let me know if I can be helpful to you. I've got another show coming up for a real estate agency real soon did one for a YPO chapter a couple of weeks ago. So a lot of different kinds of orgs are doing these. Also, in two weeks, I'm going to interview Guy Raz from NPR's How I Built This and formerly of the TED Radio Hour. So if you have any questions you'd like me to ask Guy on your behalf, please email me at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. That's the same address I just mentioned like seconds ago. Of course, if you also have comments, feedback of the non-profanity variety, please feel free to also email me there at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Okay, let's talk about comedy and economics, the economic realities of comedy. This was a very interesting conversation I had with Kyle Kinane. It's always interesting for me to talk to fellow comedians, especially those that are, oh, a decade ahead of me on the old career path because there's a lot I can learn from them about the business by hearing about their journeys, not just about how they got started, but how they've managed their careers and where they're finding success and stability. In this conversation, although I didn't mean for it to be about frugality, it sort of went that direction. We just had on Emrys Westicott, had a great conversation about the wisdom of frugality two weeks ago. If you haven't heard that one, listen to that after you listen to Kyle's. You'll find it interesting and insightful, I believe. But Kyle and I started talking about like, how his career is going in the midst of coronavirus. And I think the wisdom of frugality plays out in times of crises. Like if you're living above your means and you're living paycheck to paycheck or show to show, as it would be in the case of a comedian, and then all the shows dry up or all the work dries up, you're kind of screwed. And so we get into that and Kyle's modest living standards have helped him maintain creative control of his career, but also sanity in a time of financial crisis. Let me tell you a little bit more about him. 
Kyle Kinane is a nationally headlining comedian whose TV appearances include Comedy Central's Drunk History, This Is Not Happening, and a Comedy Central Presents half-hour comedy special. He has also performed live on the TV on Conan and The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, among many others. As an actor, he plays a cokehead ex-boyfriend in Judd Apatow's Netflix series Love and True TV's Those Who Can't. He's got a new album out. It's called Trampoline in a Ditch. It's very funny. The link to it is in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Kyle Kinane. I like to keep tickets within the $20, $25 range. I think that's a reasonable price for this day and age. And for if I charge somebody 50 bucks, they're going to be disappointed. If I mm. charge them 25, I think they can have a good time. I know I can manage expectations with the ticket price. <laughs> Anything else, I paid a hundred dollars to do that. That sucked. I paid 20 bucks. It was a great time. I don't know how you can enjoy a hundred dollar comedy show. Nothing's a hundred dollars of funny. I don't, I don't know. About <laughs> My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Kyle Kinane, welcome to Crazy Money. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> I never thought I'd be on something regarding uh, finances. Well, we'll make it relevant to your world. <laughs> Let's get right into it. What mistakes did your parents make that led you to become a stand-up comedian? <laughs> I think supporting my endeavors was their mistake. Oh, don't do that as a parent. My God. No, I mean, I've made jokes about that in the past, but you got to put put a little friction on your kids' dreams. You know, I'm not a parent now, so I guess this is the generation where every kid's told they can be whatever they want. And that's just, that's a hard crash landing when you find out that's not true. Or it is true. And then the chaos sets in when you find out how difficult it is to make a living doing whatever you want to do. I feel like I would have had a better, I feel like I could be standing in a more morally correct place if I was a bank robber at this point. <laughs> How so? What do you mean by that? Well, first off, I think we need to blow up the banks, but that's a whole other argument anyway. I just feel like I've passed what I need to survive. I feel everything I have is ill-gotten money because I got it from telling jokes and it doesn't seem real. Do you feel guilty for having been successful in the world of the arts? Yes. <laughs> I don't think any artist, if they answer no, then they're probably a shitty artist. I think every artist should feel bad about making a living. If you asked making a living. If you had as much as you have, having earned it, let's say doing what your dad did, he was an airline mechanic, would you feel guilty for doing it or would you have felt that you've earned it? I've earned my living, but then there gets to a point like, I think anybody with common sense and compassion towards the world realizes that there's only so much money you need. Now, I'm not out there just throwing it up in the air either. So don't get me wrong. But I feel like there's, I'm from a place where it's like, yeah, if your hands are dirty, you know you earned your money. In a very literal sense of the hands being dirty, not in a, uh, I was shredding documents in the back you office can, kind of way. You can have dirty hands in comedy. I've seen plenty of dirty hands in comedy. Yeah, there's some creeps out there. I mean, I always... You know, I had jobs where I sloughed off, day jobs where I sloughed off and get a paycheck and you feel a little bit bad. Like, well, I didn't do my job this week, but I got paid because nobody's paying that much attention. I think at least with comedy, if you do a bad job, you're not going to get paid. You're night to night of like, well, that sucked. I might not be invited back next year for this club or something. There's always a little feeling of guilt if your dreams came true. I'm from the Midwest. Your dreams aren't supposed to come true. It's good to have dreams up until maybe <laughs> 24, 25. Then get it out of your system, have a family, have a job that you don't like, but you do, mm -hmm. or, or you tell yourself you like it. I still don't think anybody likes their job. I think you can be content with your job, but. Is it the money that makes you feel guilty or the way you've gotten it that makes you feel? I mean, if you were making a lot of money running a restaurant back home in Illinois, would you feel guilty that people liked what you made and kept coming back? No, I, I, well, I have a very low overhead. I think with a restaurant, at least you could see like, well, I have to make this much just to exist. I'm like, I don't have to make anything to exist. I'm a solo operator. I'm an independent contractor. Mm -hmm. I have no overhead. To survive as a comedian is such low overhead that anything really, and I don't want to price out my you know fellow comedians, but really anything past a hotel room and a meal and maybe some gas money 
how much more do you, <laughs> I come from the, like the music world where all these punk rock guys were like, no, you don't, you know, the Fugazi charge $5 to get into a show type thing mixed with the show business part of like comedians are superstars and they get paid and they're big famous guys selling out stadiums. I'm like, nah, I, I, more along the lines of the minor threat. Fugazi. Well, you're in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, I'm actually in Oregon right now, riding out the COVID in Oregon, but I'm based in Los Angeles. Okay, so you live in Los Angeles, and what you're saying, though, what I'm hearing is that you can keep your overhead low, but there's plenty of people in Los Angeles who have accomplished far less than you have professionally. You've had three Comedy Central specials, you've been on TV a lot, who would take that and spend 150% of what they've already made and say, well, I'm on TV, I deserve to have all this, and I'm going to burn through everything I've made and then some just because I feel like I deserve it. I don't think I have to tell you that Hollywood celebrities are not the pinnacle of financial intellectualism. <laughs> I don't know how many lime green Lamborghinis you have to see on Sunset Boulevard to know people aren't good with their money in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> but that's your orientation toward it. I'm not surprised that you have a very sensible orientation towards the spending part of the equation. But what does surprise me is here you say that you feel a little bit guilty about the success that you've had. Yeah. You did put in a lot of years and not making any dough, right? I did, but to think I got into it for the right reason. If I was in it for the wrong reasons, I wouldn't have gotten this far anyway. I found a thing that I wanted to do no matter what. Mm. And as I've told other people, stand-up comedy is like a pub sport. It's like being a professional bowler. It's like, no, you just, you went bowling because you like bowling. Right. And then if you found out you were kind of good at bowling, maybe you'd join a league. But most of the people bowling are just there because their buddies are there and you want to drink beers and shoot the shit with your pals and bowl. Right. And then there's one guy like, oh, he's really good. Hey, man, let's get you on a league. What if that guy in that league was so good, he got to be a professional bowler? Mm -hmm. I don't know how much professional bowlers make or how much professional dart players or billiards players make. But that's what stand-up comedians to me are. Like, you were doing a thing that was fun in a bar that you have to be better at than the other people. Mm -hmm. You made it out of the bar, but how much are you supposed to get for being a professional bowler? Well, you get those cool silk <laughs> jackets with Kyle stitched on the back. So that would be that, pretty. Yeah. The embroidery alone has got to be worth its <laughs> weight in gold, but I was doing comedy because it was something I wanted to try. And right. I found, you know, like poker players, you go play poker with your friends and it's fun. And sometimes you walk away with a couple bucks. Right. But then there's some of these guys that just do it and they're in it professionally sacrificing relationships, sacrificing all these other things to go sit at a table and maybe win money. It's like that. I think. Right. It's funny. I'm reading this book called the biggest bluff by a woman named Maria Konnikova. It's all about poker and she's actually a writer and a psychologist. And she writes about how to become a poker player and make good decisions. And I'm finding a lot of similarities between poker and comedy because it's its own distinct world with its own distinct language and the players all know each other and they'll travel from venue to venue and be like, oh, that's that guy. He plays like this. That's that guy. He plays like that. So it's an interesting comparison. But the motivation to get into it, I've seen a whole lot of different kinds of motivations. But I think if you were blessed to have found something that's worth doing, doing it for the right reasons, and you just kept doing it, how long did you keep doing it before you could make a living doing it? I mean, I think I started in 99. I started in 99 and I quit my office job I was doing at the time in uh, 2009. So 10 years of doing it, four years in Chicago, six years in LA. Also, I was never like a career oriented person. It's not like I gave up taking the bar exam to become a comedian. <laughs> like there wasn't, whether knowing it or not, I streamlined my life to become a comedian. I wasn't like, oh boy, not only am I studying, you know, not only am I trying to become a doctor, but also at night I'm doing open mics. There was none of that sacrifice. Every day job I had was just to pay what small amount of bills I had so I could do comedy at night. And so the job that I quit in 2009, I probably was about to just make the same or less money doing comedy. But I finally realized like, all right, why did you move to LA to become a comedian? Like I was so set in having steady income I was the opposite of the people. Like, I'm going to move to LA with only $20 in my pocket. And then I got to make it. It's like, no, I'm going to move there and get health insurance right away. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to be responsible about these things. And even if I'm only making 300 bucks a week, I'll figure out how to live on $300 a week. And I can count on that money. It was so scary to quit. And then not only gamble on yourself with like comedy, I was using vacation time to go do shows. It's still, 
felt like a very silly bet to make on myself. It's this weird mix of like, you have to believe in yourself well enough that you might make a living being a comedian, except then your whole act is about how you don't believe in yourself when you make bad choices. <laughs> and that's how you relate to audiences. I have, but then you have to believe in yourself enough to try and make a living being a comedian. I have so I've, I've been very frugal my whole life. I credit not even the frugality, but my parents teaching me well about like credit cards are garbage. I didn't buy anything fancy when I got paid from comedy for the first time in a chunk. All I did was just pay off student loans. I wanted to just flip the bird to any interest rate that I had covered. I'm like, that was my fancy purchase. That was my Harley Davidson was knowing banks weren't making money off me anymore. That's your Harley. That was it. This week's guest on the program is a guy named Emrys Westicott, who's a philosophy professor who wrote a book called The Wisdom of Frugality. And we got deep into the Epicureans and Socrates and Plato about, you know, the wisdom of frugality. It's funny you mentioned that because frugality has actually empowered you to live your dreams as opposed to sort of where other people have materialism as their goal in and of itself. Again, I credit my parents for not ever going along with materialism. And they like, you know, my dad was worked in the airlines in the 80s, so he's getting laid off constantly. So I know we were just under the gun financially. We never felt that way. But again, I think it was because we weren't taught to look at material goods for happiness. So it was those classic stories like we might not have had money. I didn't notice. We always had food. We always had clean clothes. And that was it. I go play and you had your, not to sound corny, but you had your imagination and your friends. And that's what led to comedy anyway, is like, I know being a comedian's a skill, but like, I never had to sit and learn an instrument. I never had to sit and figure out how to paint. Those are skills. This is like, I just had to tweak being the loudest asshole at a party. <laughs> There's a difference between being funny and being a good comedian though, right? I mean, it is a craft. You can't just walk on stage and tell street jokes and hope that, you know, people find it funny no. there's no but also just like there's still a skill to being a poker player where somebody might not acknowledge that like i'm just lucky it's like no you sat there you watched how other people played you understood strategy that is that is there in comedy but i mean with the frugality thing i was doing comedy because it's like you know what if i got free drinks at the bar that night i was like bah i won <laughs> i was gonna pay for these and now they're paying me with the drinks i did it i did the thing so past that, I'm pretty surprised still to this day. Okay. So you started making a little bit of money. Was there a point where you felt like either you had made it or at least you didn't have to take people's crap quite as much as you have to take it at the beginning of your career? Well, I think it took the 10 years because I still felt I didn't have to put up with people's crap. So it took me 10 years to even make a living at it. But also, I mean, the whole reason for getting into it was to not take people's crap. I started in Chicago at the same time as, you know, guys that now people know, like, you know, Hannibal Burris and Kumail Nanjiani and Pete Holm, like all these guys are big time names, but we were all doing it because we just wanted to be good at comedy. Nobody was going to get famous in Chicago on a Monday night at the open mic. We all just wanted to be good at standup. And I think that kept the intentions pure. So when people did move away, they had a skill set of like, no, I want to be good first. If fame comes with it, if the fame and money come along, that would be really nice. But I would rather be considered good at this thing. The current state of the world, there's no greater shining example that things that are good and things that are popular are sometimes not close to being the same thing. We have a president that's an example of that. So many other things in the quote unquote arts or what makes it in a popular culture sense that I would not consider good, but they're popular. Right, right. But, but also a moment of maturity is where I have to acknowledge that just because I like something doesn't mean it's good. And just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's bad. I have horrible taste in things. So I've been thinking lately, though, that a phrase that's lost its place in our culture is not my cup of tea. Like if you don't yeah. like something, it can't just be like, ah, I'm just not into that. It's got to be like, they suck. They're the worst. They, they are a disease, right? Why can't you just say, well, can I, I'm not into Taylor Swift. Like I get that she's popular. She's not my thing. You know, I took my son to see Imagine Dragons. Okay. He's 10. It was probably like a year and a half ago. And we're in the middle of this sold out arena. I'm looking around and I know all the songs and I see the people clapping and I'm just like, it just doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't connect with me, but that doesn't mean it sucks. It doesn't mean it's awful. It just means it's not my thing. Yeah, it's, 
I mean, the politics is a bad example because politics will affect your life. Mm. But Art, I would have a, a roommate at one point where he would get so angry about because he was, you know, like a real cinephile film buff and would uh, go to sleep watching Barry Lyndon every night. And uh, <laughs> sure, as one was does. Ju- yeah, you know, because that's. And he would just get angry if like a Transformers movie was number one at the box office. And he thought it was this barometer of all society. This is why people are stupid, because that's what people go to see. They don't go see good cinema. But he would come home with like a bag of Carl's Jr. every day. Like, (laughs) you don't think there's a chef saying the same thing about people that eat Carl's Jr. every day? Not going like, there's great ingredients that are affordably priced. Everybody can afford to eat well, yet there's still idiots out there eating fast food every day. And they're not using that as a barometer of society. So like, let's, <laughs> let's like, yeah, this, like you're saying, there's no greater way to piss off everybody than just taking the middle ground. Right. There's no room for that these days. To I lose everybody in a room is to be like, hold on. I think there's good points on both sides. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's no room for intelligent discussion of consideration mm-hmm. of both sides. But I think the politics and that attitude are sort of indicative of each other. Like you can't win in politics unless you're completely polarizing on either side. And that makes us take sides. The whole politicization of wearing a mask is an indication of like, that we have to be all in one way or the other. You can't say, well, I believe in a free market economy, but I think I'll wear a mask, (laughs) right? You have to say like, I'm not going to wear a mask because I believe in America, you know? Yeah. And I don't understand the whole like rah, rah, believe in America, but also believe in a free market that caused American businessmen to have their goods manufactured in China, which undermines America. It's like, well, did anybody decide to think the next two thoughts in your line of thinking, like everything that's shared online is like, did you just click two more times to research what you were about to share? Or did you have two extra thoughts before speaking? And I'm guilty of it myself. Of like, just think just a second about these masks. You want things to get back to just wear the mask. Look at every example of every country that's back on track. What did they do? They wore masks. They stayed home. They got there. I just I had to talk my mom out of going to a casino next week. And, <laughs> and she's not even like, she's like, if you're being very safe, they're taking out slot machines so you can separate. I'm like, it's a casino. Yeah. They exist based on duping the public. They're just slow cruise ships. God, the house always wins for a reason. You'd think they're like, don't worry, we're being honest about our sanitary issues. I'm going off on rants here. This is not a comedy podcast. 99% of the listeners are not comedians. So I wonder if we just break down kind of the economic realities of being a comedian. You're beyond subsistence level, but you know, sometimes people will be like, You're doing great. I see where you're playing and all this. You know, surely you're making a living. And I'm like, no. What I say is if you're in the corporate world and you're in the 97th percentile, you're making a hundred plus grand a year. You'll work till you retire. You don't have to worry about your rents coming from. If you're in the 97th percentile in the comedy world, you're selling your plasma and you're dumpster diving, right? Because it's sort of a very (laughs) steep curve. There's like Gaffigan who makes $30 million a year and then a hundred comedians behind him. I just saw the face you made. Yeah. You can say not my cup of tea. Anyway, a hundred comedians. <laughs> no, behind, no, I like Gaffigan. No, I love Gaffigan. But like a hundred comics behind him, like everybody just is just struggling to meet, you know, their monthly bills. How many comedians do you think in the United States make more than a million dollars a year? Oh, more than a million a year? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you only see somebody for their standup. You don't realize like, oh, they did a voice on this thing. They wrote for this. So there's mm-hmm. all these hidden paychecks that come. There's all this passive income that comes in uh, for comedians. So I I would still say maybe, I think maybe you got about a hundred guys, hundred guys and gals making over a million bucks per year. Yeah. That's not bad. What about a hundred grand, like making a living in comedy? How many people truly make a living in comedy? And you can include all the voiceover and the serious money, et cetera. Well, that's the beauty of like, you get to choose how much you want to work. I mean, there's when? guys out there. That, <laughs> when do I get to choose how much I well, want? Well, I get yeah. If you can work at you know for a certain price point and do a bunch of weekends, you can mm-hmm. be guys that want to charge seventy five dollars a ticket for theaters and only do one theater or two theaters a month. I'm obviously talking about non COVID times. I'm talking sure. about the days that maybe we won't ever return to. 
I mean, I'm sure this is something that you've covered enough is that, you know, people's income all of a sudden starts dictating their tastes or their expectations of like, well, I made this much. So it means I should probably get this car, have this how because I, I can afford it. Right. And I never, I never wanted to look at the income and have that dictate my lifestyle. My lifestyle is I want to be able to do comedy without the pressure of having to do it. And how have you designed yourself and your lifestyle to make that a reality? The frugality thing, like I have to be happy with the comedy I'm doing. I never want to, I always joke when uh, you see comedians that are like, I'm doing a crowd work tour, which of course, you know, it's like you go and you talk to Todd Barry. Todd's the one guy I know loves doing it, but he's a genius. He's also a genius and he's legitimately hilarious. He is. And a lot of these guys are great at, being crowd work comedians. There's a little part of me that when I see somebody going out and billing it as a crowd work tour, I'm mm. like, nah, you just bought a house. but don't have a new <laughs> hour to tour with. So you got to go out and do crowd work. Right. Cause you can't go out and do the same jokes you did last year. Cause people will be pissed. So you have to tell them, Oh, it's a crowd work tour this time, but mostly I just need some income cause I got billed. Right. So that's what I think. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But uh, for me, I like, I like to keep tickets within the $20, $25 range. I think that's a reasonable price for this day and age. And for if I charge somebody 50 bucks, they're going to be disappointed. If I mm. charge them 25, I think they can have a good time. I know I can manage expectations with the ticket price. <laughs> anything, you know, anything. Oh, I paid $100 to do that. That sucked. I paid 20 bucks. It was a great time. Right. That's it. <laughs> You didn't change the product at all. You just changed the price point. So, and also I feel like comedy should be accessible. It should be an affordable thing to see. You should be able to be like, ah, oh, man, things are kind of crummy out there, but let's go get a couple beers and have some laughs. Like it should serve as that kind of like, not that I'm like, oh, look at me. My mother Teresa really given society a break from their woes. I don't know how you can enjoy a hundred dollar comedy show. Right. Nothing's a hundred dollars of funny. I don't, I don't know. About <laughs> that Kyle Canane, but, he's 21 95 worth of comedy. That and I is, only paid 20. I made a buck 95. Hey, those CDs you bought in the discount bin always sounded better than anything you paid on the day of the release. <laughs> it's funny. You know, six bucks for REO Speedwagon's greatest hits. I didn't even know I liked this band. So that's much. right. Oh man. REO Speedwagon high infidelity was a fantastic record. Oh, you could still rock in America, buddy. That's the, Night Ranger. I'm sorry. That, I'm that's okay. That's okay. That was a couple years later. You know, uh -huh. the theme of gratitude kind of comes up in your show in your 2016 special from Chicago. You talk about how you feel like you're so lucky to be able to make a living doing comedy. And like, mm -hmm. if you do something wrong, the balance in the universe is going to kind of come apart. And specifically, you say, yeah. if the shit goes down, my job disappears. Well, my friend, the shit has apparently gone down. <laughs> what did you do to disrupt the balance in the universe? Was this all me? <laughs> I did the, it was this whole thing was my fault. When oh, did you no. go to Wuhan is what I want to know. <laughs> oh man. What did I do? Comedian goes to China. 2021 tour is canceled. I was in China in 2018 too. Well, anyway, let's not point fingers. It is a little weird. I worry about the venues and the people that work in the venues, I worry about my friends were like just on that edge of like living gig to gig. And like I said, taking every gig they could because they needed that next paycheck. At that point, it's just like picking up extra shifts at whatever restaurant you work mm. at. Like, yes, I will take that weekend. Again, from the last 10 years of being a quote unquote professional stand-up comedian and making a living from that. And then the fact that voiceover and all that other kind of passive income came with it. I've lived below, I wouldn't say my means. I think I live within my means because I don't want for anything. And it's like that scene in Casino where it's the Lufthansa heist and they're like, don't spend any of it because they're looking at us. <laughs> that was good like, fellas. That was good fellas. Yeah. Was good fellas. I'm sorry. Yeah. Boy, I'm great with references, aren't I? That's what's good with a comedian is when he gets all his references incorrect. Um, <laughs> it's, I haven't that's done a show in four months. All right. I'm out of, I'm out of that's I'm a, a little dusty. That is a fair mistake to make. I'll give you that. <laughs> same director, same star. Come on. Uh, yeah. How could you confuse those two movies? Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, like don't spend it. All right. Just be cool. We got to wait till the heat dies down. And for me, I've been waiting for the heat to die down of like 
this isn't real money. Let's not treat it like you're saying. Like, I got this paycheck. I better buy this. I better mm-hmm. get that because I earned it's like most of the money I made. I was like, how do you know you get to be a comedian next year? Right. There's no corporate loyalty. And I learned that again, a lesson from my dad who would get, you know, worked for Eastern Airlines for 20 years and then got laid off just because they went up and had nothing to show for it. He's just said, remember, there's no such thing as corporate loyalty. Right. Corporations exist like casinos. They're thinking of themselves. They're not thinking of the components that make them. But there is loyalty for your fan base, right? I mean, in today's world, you can connect with fans in different ways. And what you were saying earlier about charging 20 bucks a ticket, I mean, clearly your fans know that you're in it for the relationship and for the quality of the experience and not to screw them out of an extra 10, 20 bucks a ticket. Yeah. And if in five years it goes up $5 or $10, you know, with inflation and everything, okay, maybe that's how the world works. But I'm not going to try to exploit what I have now for a quick money grab. I think people can tell that. And I can work as much or as little as I want. When I go out to do shows, I want to make sure like, okay, this city's going to get a brand new hour of material that you didn't get last time. And if that means it happens within a year or if it happens within two years, I'll be back there with a new hour of material that I think is good. I don't want to just play to the fan. You know, you see some acts where it's like, oh, we know what the audience expects from me. So I give them that. I'm like, well, I got to be happy with what I'm saying too. And that doesn't always mean that the audience is. Sometimes the audience is like, yeah, you missed the point on that one, Kyle. I'm like, all right, well, good to know. But In the past week or so, I've been on your website, just kind of, you know, clicking on your bio and clicking on some of the videos and stuff. And in that space and time, I believe what I saw, when I first looked at it, you have all these dates coming up. You had like all your August dates and everything. You're playing nice theaters. You're going to play Atlanta. And within that week, those dates just poof, went away. Does that scare you or you know, freak you out in any way. Those were supposed to be off the website. I looked at it. I don't look at my own website too often. Somebody else handles the design and the information on it. I looked at, I'm like, why are these still up there? We know we rescheduled these Mm -hmm. a couple weeks back. Yeah. I'm a little bummed out. I was looking forward again, the whole betting on yourself. I was starting to play slightly larger venues for Mm -hmm. me. It's like thousand seat theaters and stuff like that. And that's big for me. And so it was a bummer to have that go away, but yeah, like you talk about the gratitude. I'm glad I'm not panicked. I'm glad I'm not in a financial place where now my financial miscalculations has me rethinking the opening of comedy clubs of like, well, maybe if they're distant enough and everybody's, you can't <laughs> wear a mask and drink your light beer, drink your two required light beers. Like it doesn't <laughs> work. Uh, what are you working on during quarantine? Anything? No, nothing. No. It's great. I am in a very unique situation to be able to ride this out. But I mean, are you writing? Are you getting anything? Just like any other time I'll write. If something, I think it's funny, I'll write it down, but I don't have that. Like, you know what? Every day I sit down and I write comedy from noon to four. Some people can do that. I can't, I got to wait for something to happen. And what works for me is I'm sitting in the yard, drinking beer, petting a stray cat, (laughs) <laughs> and that that's that's my process right now and i'm fine with that i need to find some stray cats to pet i think that uh, hey stray cat was free the light beer was pretty cheap there you go so let's talk about the new record trampling in a ditch out july 24th you know a lot of comedians seem to have a peter pan complex and on this record you talk a lot about seeing things differently in life as you inhabit middle age Have you come to embrace your own mortality? Yeah. You know, what's important in the arts right now is a straight middle-aged white guy. (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed with demand myself. (laughs) Hold on. Uh, You know what? Can I interject? You might need my thoughts. Did you say you had a Uh, centrist (laughs) point of view? We'd really like to hear a balanced explanation of the world's problems. Yeah. You know what? From my experience in the world, I think I have some solutions for you. My album is going to be called Born on Third Base. Let me tell you my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, I could could see home plate from here. Uh, (laughs) I just didn't want to previous albums. You know, I talk about my prolonged adolescence. And I mean, that's every comedian's like you're saying, Peter Pan complex and boys. 20s, I'm acting like I'm 15. In my 30s, I'm acting like I'm 22. 
just creatively. I don't want to just repeat those jokes with different words. Mm. Be like, oh man, I can't believe I did this when I was 43. Cause then it just starts to sound sad. Whether that is how I'm living or not. Nobody's like, man, I ever throw up in the shower because you thought a drunk bath would be a good idea. Like that's a sad story in the forties and you don't want to hear about that. That's not celebratory. Right. So I think it's hard to make philosophy into comedy. You know, it's easy to just bitch about life, Mm. but that's not philosophy. That's just complaining, which has helped a lot. I mean, from the Midwest, the whole thing there was all my friends were funnier than I was. And everybody knew that your life wasn't going to be great. Everybody knew that your life was going to be fine. Not great. You weren't going to get your dreams, but it was going to be maybe fine if you worked real hard and kept your head on your shoulders. So if anybody wanted to complain about life, they knew they had to make it fun to listen to. Because otherwise, who gives a shit about your complaints? Mm. You're just going to whine about stuff? Why should I listen to you whine? I got things I could whine about. (laughs) Right. So if you're going to complain, you better make it fun to listen to. And that's where that skill, I think that's where the comedy came in through all my friends. My friend Bob, if he had a bad day, we were all excited because he would be the most fun to listen to. Right. Talk about it. And then he knew it. And then that made his day better. He knew like, all right, I'm going to process this bad day in a way that's entertaining for others because it makes me feel better about my situation because I know they're not laughing at me. They're laughing with me. And then everybody feels you're all laughing about it. Now, his day's not so bad. Our day's already better because he made us laugh. And that's where I'm trying to come from. Like, you can only complain so much to where it's you're just a burden. If you're going to complain about something, do something about it. Mm-hmm. And so I'd rather write comedy about doing something about the complaints and trying to rectify at least my own shortcomings. Or, you know, if I'm angry about something in the world, like you're saying, the not my cup of tea stance. Right. If I'm angry about something, is it because it's bad or is it because there's something wrong with me that I can't see why that's good? Do I have too many filters on that won't allow me to enjoy something as simple as Imagine Dragons? Maybe they do suck, but maybe they're good in a specific moment of drinking beer and petting a stray <laughs> cat. And that's why I, know I was looking to Imagine Dragons to be the new Beatles. And that's wrong. Yeah. You don't go into Taco Bell hoping it's Bobby Flay back there making your food. No, you know what you're going to get from it. Stop and manage your expectations. You know, the guy, the lead singer of Imagine Dragons was like, who's going to let go tonight? And I was like, uh, I don't think it's going to be me. I think I'm going to be sitting here thinking about why that club booker won't call me back. I think that's what I'm going to be doing during this concert while my son is freaked out by your light show. I think that's what's going to happen. And I'm going to think about how much these parking was $38. <laughs> I let go of $38 for parking. That's what I let go of. Right, right. <laughs> That's a perfect example. We went and saw The Misfits a couple years back. And right. I was so mystified. because, like The Misfits, Glenn Danzig. And we're all at LA Coliseum, all these aging punk rockers. <laughs> right. And we started getting yelled at from a guy behind us because he was mad that we were standing up to watch The Misfits. Right, yeah. Everybody with their early onset arthritis stood up to sing about blood and guts and shit. And then there was a guy who was angry behind us because he couldn't see the misfits from his seat. And I wanted to be mad right away. But again, you may like, hold on. This is the most punk rock guy in this whole stadium because he spent his 50 bucks and he wanted to sit down and watch the misfits. (laughs) Those, I don't want to say nostalgia tours, but that's kind of what it is just because of the virtue of the age. I went to see, there's a great venue in Atlanta called Chastain Amphitheater Mm -hmm. and it's outdoors and it's not one of those new amphitheaters. It's so big that you can't see the artist on stage. It's like, it's, I don't know, 2000 people and it's tight and it's cool. And I went to see Echo and the Bunnymen open for Violent Femmes. I'm not as cool as you are, is what I'm trying okay. to say. Uh, that's and pretty so cool. That's it was all right. Cool it was all right. It was summertime. It was hot as shit. And the lead singer of Echo and the Bunnymen is singing, and it's bright lights outside. He's got a leather jacket on in August in Atlanta. And I'm like, that guy's pretty cool. But I'm looking at the audience in front of him like, who are all these old people that are here at this show? And there was like, oh my God, that's what I look like. This is depressing as all hell. I am 43 and now 
I make the choice to wear sensible uh, Adidas to concerts because <laughs> I know the arch supports there. The Vans aren't right. going to cut it. I mean, no offense to Vans or there's inserts in them. I wear sensible shoes mm. and I always choose a random child's name to call out in case people think I'm there with a kid. And <laughs> just Stefan, Stefan, have you seen my son? And then that way I don't just look like a weird old guy right. at a ska show. We got to go. The plantar fasciitis is acting up. <laughs> God. Too real. Too okay. Real, Paul. So at one point in your new album, you talk about your legacy. You ponder mm-hmm. as to what your legacy might be, which is a really funny catchphrase that I'm not going to mention because I want to maintain surprise and mystery here. <laughs> but you also say you're not going to have kids, meaning you won't have a physical legacy to point to, etc. Yeah. Is hoping your material becomes your legacy too much pressure to put on yourself? And I know you're joking about that, but don't all well, comedians hope that your work becomes legendary and lives on after you're gone? Again, that goes into the philosophy, like what you feel about death. It's like, do you think everybody just gets to sit somewhere after they die going, Haha, I knew that one would catch on. Or it's like, it's, I mean, it, that's, I'm always suspect of that belief of like, because I do think like you die and then there's nothing afterwards, but boy, that really you can harness that concept for very sinister purposes. Like, well, if it doesn't matter, then I may as well do this in my life. Or you could use it for positivity. Like you can't take anything with you. So be generous and be kind. And, you know, no, (laughs) I think some bits I would like to mostly not just be an embarrassing memory for anybody (laughs) attached to my family. (laughs) I think that's the most I could hope for is like, wait, can I, Kyle Kinane is part of you. Whoa. Like I would hope that anybody related to me doesn't have to answer embarrassing questions, filling out job applications. <laughs> That's all. That's a worthy legacy. Although I'm the last Kinane, I think I'm the last Kinane that can pass on the name and I'm not doing it. The so. last of the Kinanes. So in your 2016 special, you talk about going to the doctor and you realize mm-hmm. that she's only 39 you're 39 and you sort of juxtapose what each of you has done with your lives up to that point. Do you have any regrets about the profession you've chosen or how you've chosen to go about it? There's um, that joke. And uh, in a previous joke, like I said, some of the, if you really watch comedians, they're just rewording their best bits. (laughs) I've said before (laughs) that, uh, in a special where I was like, I'm 35 and that some people my age are astronauts. Mm. It's what mood do you want to be in? I could be in a mood where I'm disappointed in my lack of uh, adult accomplishments of like, oh, maybe I was supposed to have that well-groomed yard and that family and I should know how to back a boat into a lake. (laughs) You know, like these are things that if somebody's like, can you do this? I'm like, not a fucking chance. But but I look at what I do do for a living and I've made it so that I don't have to know those things. And that's also its own skill. Like Sometimes I feel like a sad excuse for a man, like a man should know how to gut a fish, start a fire, raise a barn and do all this. Like, or I figured out how to tell jokes and avoid all all adult responsibility. And some days I feel pretty good about that too. (laughs) Some days I feel like, oh, I'm going to take this disposable income that I have from my joke money and hire a professional to do the job right. My ego still gets the best of me. Like when I tried to fix plumbing in an apartment, that's (laughs) where you don't have to do that. And I learned then the hardest way possible that you should turn the water off first before <laughs> yes in a rental property yeah where my apartment was above the building managers and so guess had, who found out who did that wrong right away all you had to do was give him a ring and let him know you had a leaky commode yeah but if i did that i wouldn't have flooded my kitchen and then gotten a new story that i can charge people 24.95 to come see me tell it's all playing into the master plan, Paul. I think you got to have a Boy Scout badge, making money while avoiding responsibility. Where's that badge? What are we teaching our kids? 
again, things I've said in the past, like all I've done is made a personality trait, a marketable skill. Just be, oh, that guy's pretty funny at parties. All right, cool. Give me 20 bucks. All I've done is capitalized on a personality trait. (laughs) And so, and again, a reason I won't spend all this money. I think a stand-up comedy, I give it reverence and respect. And I think done well, it's a nice little pressure release for society, for anything on a personal level. But for me, I can't look at it like, you're right, I'm an artist. And once I do that, it's over. Once I start getting full of myself, it's all over. It's my last tether to the real world. I'm an artist. I should be treated as such. Hey, you guys ever fart under the sheets and call it filling the sails to dream country? Anyway, I'm an artist. (laughs) I am as an artist. Is that what you mean by be grateful with a healthy dose of paranoia? Like this is great, but don't bet on tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. I don't know where, I mean, where you're at with finances and if it's like, uh, what we got to invest and be smart in this. I don't want to constantly worry about the future. I had friends that were planning for retirement when they were 20. And I, I was like, what, what do you mean? What your body's not going to be the same. You think you're going to do stuff when you're sick. Also, wasn't the retirement age 55 at some point? I was thinking about this. I think yesterday, wasn't there some point where like the The expected age of retirement was 55 years old. I think when Social Security was put in place, life expectancy was 62, which is why they made the eligibility age for Social Security 65. You were never supposed to get it. It was like an emergency thing. Yeah. Now, like retirement is earlier, whether you choose to retire or not. And people are living until they're 80, you know, on average. Women anyway. Yeah. That's why I I can't like, like, well, when I'm 60, that's when I'll be able to, what, you're going to hike the Appalachian Trail when you're 60? That kind of like counting on the future to be there stuff. I'm all over the place. I don't have a solid plan, Paul. That's how I got here. If I had a solid line of thinking, I would have never become a comedian. I'm like, no, you got to go to college. And when you get a right. job that you paid for it, college, like, no, nah, I kind of just went with the flow. But like, there's no like, oh, when five years, I better be here. And then in 10 years, I better be here. I can't get into that. I can't understand that line of thinking. Too many variables. I mean, there's all your bumper sticker catchphrase, like life is what happens when you're busy making plans or whatever bumper sticker philosophy you want to apply to it. But it's true. I don't know what's going to happen in five years. I might run out of jokes. It can happen. I've seen comedians where they're still doing it. You're like, yeah, you're not, you got ran out of stuff to talk about or that, or they got too rich. That's the crux of being a, a working man's artist is that if you relate to the working man too much and then you're celebrated, well, then you make a living. Now you're not necessarily a working man anymore. If you're a millionaire trying, like then you just become Larry, the cable guy Mm. and you're a caricature of a blue collar employee and you're a billionaire who has a personal tailor take the sleeves off of their (laughs) flannel shirt. And I'm not saying that act is bad. I'm not saying people are truly convinced that he's, that's one of the smoothest transitions into becoming that is to become a character. Mm -hmm. But to sit there and be like, Oh, let me tell you about how tough. I mean, I wonder what Bruce Springsteen's mansion looks like. Like, does he have a closet for just the bandanas? Are they dry cleaned? I'm curious. I just finished his memoir. It's yeah. actually pretty interesting, but that's a horrible sh- example. Yeah. Let me attack Bruce Springsteen. What a great <laughs> No, example. but that's, no, no, no. Are you afraid of success? I mean, are you afraid of losing your edge if you get to be too successful? Yeah, a little bit. Again, that goes to like, all right, I'm trying to change, like, I can't just do jokes about, boy, my job waiting tables is terrible. Mm -hmm. No, I haven't done that in 15 years. Right. So that's disingenuous to act like I'm still in that area of life. But you can talk about the other way. Somebody made some joke about a comic on stage complaining about like how their Ferrari broke down. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not really relatable either now, is it? So Right. It can be real, but not relatable. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. How do you make something that's real also relatable? You don't want to be disingenuous about like, oh man, I'm scrabbing my, I got dirt under my fingernails too, everybody. No, that's not the case. I didn't have to, I'm not fixing my jalopy on the side of the highway to get to the next gig. It's a Hyundai. It's a rental. I have AAA. Things will be fine. You know, <laughs> you know, it's like you see in the, like you're saying the nostalgia tours and they go see the, all the old punk rock bands and they're like, 
this one's about tearing down society. It's like, I know you live in a McMansion in Orange County and you have three kids and you drive a Chevy Suburban and you're a completely happy father. Like, are you really saying that when you fill out your taxes? Like, oh, I'm sticking it to the man. Occupation provocateur. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. City, Laguna Beach, California, right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Kyle, it's been a lot of fun. Where can people find out more about you and the new record? Oh, man, just Kyle Kinane across all the social media platforms. Didn't have to add any numbers or winky faces or anything. <laughs> so just, Is uh, your album going to be on your website? Whoever's handling that website, they better have it on there somehow. <laughs> It'll be on, uh, there's a pre-save option now for like Spotify, Pandora. This is a bit new turf for me because the other ones have been uh, Netflix or a Comedy Central on-air special. So since that time, now I'm a little uncertain how to listen to stuff. I'm like, you'll find it, right? <laughs> Come on. Th- th- They'll find it. I feel like, a, like an old man, like a bluegrass musician. Like, <laughs> I just play the banjo. You kids put it on the robots. I don't know where it goes. All right. KyleKinane.com. K-I-N-A-N-E.com. Kyle, thanks for your time, man. Thanks for rapping with me, Paul. Thank you so much to Kyle for taking time to be a part of the show. I greatly appreciate it. I hope that all continues to go well for him and his career, that that imposter syndrome that he's afraid of, that being found out as having too much fun to earn his money doesn't come back and get him because I think he's a nice guy and he's a very funny comedian. Let's talk takeaways here real quick, folks. I think living simply, you know, is not something you can't wait till the bad times to live frugally, to live within your means, because you don't get a lot of warning when these pandemics are about to start. And once they start, it's too late. And Kyle is benefiting from those years of spending within his means and of not overvaluing the things money can buy and keeping those credit cards paid off. So good for him. Secondly, you know, the path to earning a living in the arts isn't a short one and you have to do it because you love it. If any money comes from it, well, that's just gravy, really. The only thing you can count on, whether you're starting any creative venture, whether it's a comedy career, a singing career, a podcast, or painting, whatever it is, is the right to do your thing. That's what you get. You get to choose to do your thing, and that is the reward in and of itself. And if it's not, you're going to be sorely disappointed because the money in the arts sucks until you're really good at it or until you figure out your thing to such a degree that you're able to spend some of the dollars your way. That's the thing, folks. And I really appreciate you being here with us this week. I enjoyed talking to Kyle. Hope you did too. By all means, scroll down into the show notes, click the link for his new album, Trampoline in a Ditch. And uh, that'll take you to links you can find on whatever app you listen to your audio content on Spotify, iTunes, et cetera, et cetera. Oh yes. As I said, I am going to interview Guy Raz from How I Built This in two weeks. So if you have questions you'd like me to proffer to Mr. Raz, by all means, shoot me an email at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Thanks for listening again today. Shoot me a note if you've got any thoughts, comments, or guest suggestions. Really appreciate you being part of the show. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.